0: Stay tuned after the show to find out how you can help this series stay ad-free. October 8, 1871. A small fire breaks out in an immigrant neighborhood in Chicago around 9 p.m. The fire quickly engulfs a barn, then a shed, then houses. Two days later, more than 300 people were dead, and over 100,000 were homeless. How does Chicago, the second largest city in America, have so much damage from a fire? How does a barn fire lead to 3.3 square miles of total destruction and another five square miles of damage? What do we learn from the largest urban fire in American history? I'm Nolan Nocturne. This is Disasters by Design. episode 1, The Great Chicago Fire. Chicago as we know it now was founded in 1833. Started as a trading post of 200 people, this area exploded to over 4,000 in seven years. Soon after its founding, a port was built on the Chicago River, connected to the Mississippi River. Soon after, a rail yard. Finally, In 1848, a canal was completed and Chicago became the centerpiece for trading between Canada, the United States, Central, and South America. With the economy booming, people from all over the world flocked to Chicago. Immigrant populations bloomed here even faster than they had in New York City. By 1870, the population was 2 million. As Chicago grew, its population outpaced technology. Due to its proximity to the forest in the Ohio Valley, wood was the primary construction material used in Chicago buildings. The population was expanding at a rate that necessitated using readily available materials. By 1871, more than two-thirds of the buildings within Chicago were made entirely of wood. Most of the houses were topped with tar roofs. Tar is a great material for insulation, but terrible for preventing fires. But it wasn't just homes and buildings. Sidewalks, bridges, roads were all constructed using wood. Chicago is traditionally known to be humid, especially during the summer. The summer of 1871, however, proved to be dry. Between July 4th and the fire, the city had only received an inch of rain, Rainfall in Chicago usually comes from northern winds bringing cold air from Lake Michigan. Prior to the fire, Chicago had only received winds from the southwest, bringing dry air and heat. These are the same conditions seen in wildfires in the western United States, and they can have a significant negative impact on fire containment and suppression. The Chicago Fire Department was almost 20 years old at the time of the fire. Despite the population boom, municipal services had not been expanded at the same rate. There were only 180 firefighters and 17 horse-drawn steam engines to protect the second-largest city in America. The lack of manpower forced firefighters to work long ships days on end. The Chicago Daily Tribune noted that the firefighters had worked on several smaller fires in the days prior, and thus would have been exhausted by the time that they were expected to fight the blaze. Not only did it lack the manpower to fight a significant blaze, it lacked the infrastructure. In its haste to expand, Chicago failed to improve its water distribution capabilities. While the Chicago Water Tower was completed in 1869 and definitely had a positive impact on firefighting within the city, it was not enough to handle the blaze. The fire began in a barn belonging to the O'Leary family on DeKoven Street. The initial response by the fire department was quick, but not without error. An alarm sent from the area near the fire failed to register at the courthouse where the fire watchmen were. Without knowing the exact location of the fire, firefighters were sent to the wrong location. When firefighters finally arrived at Decovin Street, the fire had grown and spread to neighboring buildings and was progressing towards the central business district. Firefighters had hoped that the south branch of the Chicago River, and an area that had previously burned, would act as natural firebreaks. All along the river, however, were lumber yards, warehouses, coal piles, along with barges on the water, and numerous bridges crossing the river. As the fire grew, the southwest wind intensified and became superheated, causing structures to catch fire from the heat and from burning debris blown by the wind. Around 11.30 p.m., flaming debris blew across the river and landed on roofs, including those at the south side Gas Works. With the fire across the river and moving rapidly towards the heart of the city, panic set in. As more buildings succumbed to the flames, a major contributing factor to the fire's spread was a meteorological phenomenon known as a fire whirl. As overheated air rises, it comes into contact with cooler air and begins to spin, creating a tornado-like effect. These fire whirls are likely what drove flaming debris so high and so far. Such debris was blown across the main branch of the Chicago River, to a railroad car carrying kerosene. The fire had jumped the river a second time, and was now raging across the city's north side. Despite the fire spreading and growing rapidly, the city's firefighters continued to battle the blaze. A short time after the fire jumped the river, a burning piece of timber lodged itself on the roof of the city's waterworks. Within minutes, the interior of the building was engulfed in flames, and the building was destroyed. With it, the city's water mains went dry, and the city became helpless. The fire burned unchecked, building to building, block to block. Finally, late into the evening of October 9th, it started to rain, but by then the fire had already started to burn itself out. The fire had spread to sparsely populated areas of the north side, having consumed the densely populated areas thoroughly. The fire would continue to smolder until the next day, but by now was ultimately contained. Once inspectors deemed the area safe, city officials began documenting the damage. They determined that the fire destroyed an area about four miles long and averaging three quarters of a mile wide. In total, about $222 million in property was destroyed. It's about a third of the city's valuation. In 2018 dollars, that's over $4 billion. 100,000 people were left homeless. 120 bodies were recovered, but the death toll may have been as high as 300. The county coroner speculated that an accurate count would be impossible. City officials were never able to determine the exact cause of the blaze. If you're familiar with the legends, you were probably told that the O'Leary family cow was responsible for the fire. That it kicked over a lantern while being milked. You were told wrong. The O'Leary family denied any involvement in the fire, stating that they were in bed before the fire started. But stories of the cow began to spread across the city. Catherine O'Leary seemed the perfect scapegoat. She was a poor Irish Catholic immigrant. During the latter half of the 19th century, anti-Irish sentiment was at its peak throughout the United States and in Chicago. The story was circulating in Chicago even before the flames had died out, and was noted in the Chicago Tribune's first post-fire issue. It wasn't until 1893 that the original reporter, Michael Aaron, retracted the Cowan Lantern story, admitting he had fabricated it but even this confession was unable to put the legend to rest. Although the O'Leary's were never officially charged with starting the fire, the story became so ingrained in local lore that Chicago's city council officially exonerated them and the cow in 1997. There are prevailing explanations. The most common suggested cause places blame on a group of men playing craps in the barn, There is, however, one scholar who blames a meteor shower. Aside from weather reports indicating that the shower was scheduled to begin that night, no physical evidence of this hypothesis has been uncovered. The most important takeaway from the fire was the evolution of building practices in the city. New York architect Frederick Law Olmsted was among the first to offer solutions, including swapping wood for brick and increasing the distances between structures. However, it was former Union Army General Arthur Ducat who would have the most impact on the Reconstruction. Following his retirement from the Union Army at the end of the Civil War, Ducat became a leading expert in fire prevention. His textbook, The Practice of Fire Underwriting, became the backbone of Chicago's fire prevention codes. He also spurred the reformation of the city's fire department, It wasn't long after the fire that the city found itself with a world-renowned fire department. While the city was focused on the intangible forms of recovery, building developers moved in quickly to rebuild. Only 20 years after the fire, the city would host the World's Fair, and with it, 21 million visitors. The O'Leary's house and barn was rebuilt after the fire and remained on Decoven Street until 1956. That year, the city purchased it and demolished the property and built the Chicago Fire Academy. A bronze memorial was erected in 1961. It is a testament to the human spirit that the city was able to rebuild as quickly as it did. Chicago still remains the second largest city in the United States, and its fire department now receives more than 500,000 calls annually. Our closing music is the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, written by Horatio Spafford. It was partially inspired by his financial ruination following. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and tell your friends. If you have an episode idea or a question about a topic, you can email me at nolannocturne at protonmail.com. You can learn more about the show by following me on Twitter at nolannocturne. Our intro music was Roaming the Streets at Night by Daniel Birch. Show graphics developed by Heath Robinson. Thanks for listening. One last thing, this podcast is 100% ad free, now and forever. If you like what you hear and want to help support the show, check out the tip jar or our Patreon campaign. Links to both are in the description.